3: History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp Therapy Online. Life doesn't come with a user manual. So when life stops working for you, it's pretty normal to feel stuck. Imagine somebody who spent, oh, say 25 years being really distracted overwhelmed by clutter, and fluctuating between being really into obscure ancient history and not being able to find the motivation to do the dishes. That person is me, and apparently, if there were a user manual to life, it might have told me that I have ADHD and should talk to my doctor about that. Therapists are about as close to a manual as we can get, folks who are trained to help you figure out challenging emotions and learn coping skills. BetterHelp has connected millions of people with licensed, registered therapists for convenient and secure online therapy. It's convenient and 100% accessible online. No waiting rooms, no traffic, and not even endless Googling of therapist near me. You just fill out a questionnaire and get matched with an appropriate therapist. And if it doesn't click, BetterHelp makes it easy to switch providers. Everyone deserves to feel their best, so get unstuck with BetterHelp. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com Persia. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com Persia. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Persia, a special bonus episode interviewing Dr. Michael Bonner. Dr. Bonner recently published a new book called The Last Empire of Iran. Now, we on the current part of the podcast are barely into the First Empire of Iran, so this is going to be a bit of a fast forward. We're going to skip right through the Seleucid and Parthian periods and into the final pre-Islamic Iranian Empire, the Sassanids. There will be some catch-up in order, and that's part of the episode, but I thought everybody would be interested in hearing what Dr. Bonner has to say. Now, this episode was actually planned for this coming week, and I apologize for the delay in getting anything out over the weekend. I think I only mentioned this to the Patreon subscribers so far, I'm currently in quarantine with my in-laws, trying to record around four dogs, and while I thought I had successfully blotted out all of the sound while recording episode 34, I was not as successful as I thought. So, the new plan is I am going to spend this week re-recording that, and writing and recording everything up to the end of the Ionian Revolt. After that, I'll keep releasing episodes as usual, but personally, I'm taking a break. I've got some catch-up reading to do. There are some really interesting cultural-based episodes coming up that require a lot of background. So, until then, please enjoy this interview with Dr. Michael Bonner. So, I suppose the best place to start is with yourself. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, what you have worked on before and why you chose to research the Sassanid Persians?
4: Of course. So, what I would say, well, first of all, I'm very, I'm very grateful that uh, you wanted to uh, discuss this topic. It's uh, obviously one that I take a great deal of interest in. But um, I did not come to. Study the Sasanian Empire for a very long time, and it was a sort of long and, and circuitous route. Um, I was originally a classicist uh, in undergrad. That interest in uh, Latin and Greek uh, began in high school, but I was always a bit of a contrarian, always uh, sort of interested in, in things on the periphery of the subject, and I was very Lucky that uh, my first Latin teacher introduced us to, to actual Latin texts through the work of Eutropius, who is a late, uh, late Roman writer, sort of epitomist of, of earlier histories. And it was the history of the Parthian Wars that uh, the class was uh, originally presented with. And that was really, really interesting to me. And um, I always sort of wanted to know more about that. And and that remained sort of dormant for a very long time. And of course in school, you know, we, we had all been introduced to, uh, you know, the Greek uh, history of the Greek city-states and so forth. So of course the Achaemenid world w- was sort of always in the back of my mind also. But going into classics in in university, you know the emphasis the emphasis was highly philological very much on uh making sure that students properly understood what they were reading and that they could defend their construals uh grammatically and so forth so not too much history but out of that experience in in undergrad i became actually fascinated by the late roman world and uh you know what we call byzantium and of course the great opponent of late Rome and Byzantium for a very long time was Persia. And um, whether that was in in the form of the Parthian uh, Empire or the later uh, Sasanian one. So that was always sort of, you know, looming in in the background. And when I became a graduate and I was looking for, you know, something to study, I chose Byzantium. But my tutor, uh, James Howard Johnston, very quickly pushed me into the study of Iran what he calls you know the other great power or you know he of, he often ref, referred to the two great powers of late antiquity and he he saw an opportunity for me to to look into persia so i did it's kind of a long-winded uh, explanation but i came to that moment having having learned you know latin and greek from a very young age and uh, as an undergrad i had studied persian and arabic uh, as well as a bit of a uh, bit of Syriac and Imperial Aramaic as well. Uh, so I had the languages and um, didn't really know what I was uh, getting into, but I started off uh, reading people like uh, Procopius and, and finished off with the uh, Eastern historians, Dinoari and Tabari and also the Shahnamé of Ferdowsi, and uh, before I knew it, I had written a master's thesis on Iran in the 6th century, and it's just sort of gone from there. So sort of long long, and complex,
3: but, you know, here we are now. Oh, that's that's great. Um, it sounds not unlike a slower version of my progression of interest into Iran. I also started with an interest in classics and discovered Iran through that uh, course of study. Yeah, well, the two really go together, I think. I mean, you can't really...
4: If you take... Uh, I don't know, like say, like the work of Thucydides, for example. It's like he's writing uh, on the on the fringe of the you know the big world power of of the era, and uh, you can't help, I think, or at least I I couldn't help, but you know wonder how the Peloponnesian War would have been perceived by you know, by, uh, by the, Achaemenid, uh, the Achaemenid monarchy. And, uh, you know, Thucydides is of, is, of course, our only, like, real source for that. But, you know, you wonder sort of how, uh, how things were perceived at, 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 at what could be called the real center of action, if you see what I mean.
3: Yes, yeah. And it always is so frustrating to have to work with just those one or two sources from somewhere else to try and get answers. Exactly. So, given that uh, that's just a little bit ahead of where I am in the podcast narrative currently, uh, the audience is probably much more familiar with Achaemenid history right now. So, could you possibly give a brief summary of Sassanid history, maybe say a few words about what came just before with the uh, Seleucids and the Parthians, to give people an idea of what we're talking about today? Sure.
4: So... After the fall of the Achaemenid or the, the conquest of the Achaemenid uh, monarch, you have, you, have, you have the establishment of the, of the states that are succeeding to the rule of Alexander. The most important of them was the Seleucid uh, monarchy. And, you know, that, that, uh, that empire was more or less, like with the notable exception of Egypt, that was more or less the old uh, Achaemenid monarchy. And, you know, it, it held together, you know, I guess, respectably for uh, for a little while, but was very, uh, uh, what's the right word? Steadily, very steadily sort of uh, uh, taken over by a, a group of people that came to be called the Parthians, who originated in uh, northeastern Iran and... They ruled for a good uh, 500 odd years. Famously, you know, the the, the Battle of Cary where Crassus uh, was killed. You know, classicists are familiar with that one. It was the, uh, you know, Parthian horse uh, archers that uh, uh, did him in and and so forth. Uh, That monarchy, that empire was... I what you would call very decentralized. The the chief Parthian king was sort of uh could be compared to like a feudal king with sort of uh feudal relationships with sub-kings and sub-governors and, and all sorts of uh you know, heterogeneous uh rulers of various regions. And, you know, it, it held together relatively well. Uh, considering uh, how long it lasted and there were various revolts and and, and so on and so on and so on. Uh, And of course, memorable uh, contests with Rome. The last such major revolt, though, occurred in uh, the opening of the third century. Uh, The governor of Fars, where the name Persia comes from in uh, southwestern Iran, the, the governor of that region at the time was a man by the name of Ardashir, of very obscure uh, origin. We don't really know much about him. Uh, he led a revolt against the uh, Parthian king, who had uh, uh, recently suffered some humiliations uh, inflicted by Rome. And uh, he overthrew him, and, uh, he, was, uh, he, was, and, and he replaced him. Uh, the, last, the last Parthian king was a man by the name of Artaban uh, the Fourth, So Ardashir sets up a new uh, monarchy and, um, as I say, of obscure origin. Somehow, um, you know, putting aside all of the legendary accounts, somehow his family acquired the name of Sasan. That's a family name. And uh, that gives us the that gives us the name Sassanian uh, for the dynasty. And what is particularly noteworthy about that is that you have, similar to the Achaemenids, but very much unlike Rome, you have the rule of a single family. You have the rule of 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 a, of a proper dynasty that, uh, despite challenges, was never replaced for, you know, a good, uh, for, 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 for maybe 450 years or so. And um, they uh, basically, if you look uh, at Roman sources, Roman sources portray Ardashir and his successors as uh, attempting to uh If not actually recreate the Achaemenid uh, empire to at least uh restore its uh its ancient borders, which of course led to a great deal of conflict with with Rome um, with the exception of uh, a notable period in the fifth century. Rome and sasanian Persia were almost constantly at war um, most famously maybe not most famously, but cer- certainly notably uh, in the time of Justinian. Actually, even before that, the, uh, Julian the Apostate led uh, a, a memorable invasion of Iran, and that is, of course, when he died. And uh, we have the many conflicts uh, under Justinian, and uh, these culminate uh, in the reign of the Persian king Khosrow II uh, as a sort of war of conquest in which Iran basically swallows the Roman Empire whole including Egypt and uh, the Levant and much of Anatolia, right up to the, uh, right up to the uh, uh, Bosphorus, right, right to the gate of Constantinople. Basically, they held that territory for a good 20 years, and the uh, reaction from the Emperor Heraclius famously rescued the, uh, the Roman Empire. Uh, Persia was defeated, the territories were given back, and just when it seemed as though everything might have gone back to normal, uh, Arab conquest begins, and in a very short space of time, Persia is completely uh over overwhelmed the sasanian dynasty is extinct, and um most of the Roman empire is is conquered so uh needless to say the uh the rule of the sasanian uh dynasty coincides with some of the most uh, memorable events in in world history, and it can fairly be said that uh, it's this period and 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 arguably that war itself right before the coming of islam that sort of marks the the end
3: of what we call antiquity and the beginning of the middle ages well uh thank you for that i think that helps get everything settled and of course we are here today uh because you recently put out a new book and one question that i think was the very first thing I thought of when I saw the title of the book, uh, and I hope you could comment on, even though I know you answer it in the introduction, is your book is called The Last Empire of Iran. Uh, and obviously, strictly speaking, that's not necessarily true, given we had a yeah imperial state of Iran until the 1970s. Mm-hmm. So could you explain the choice of the title,
4: yeah, so you're right. It's not literally, you know, the last, but it is the last in some significant uh senses. Uh first of all, everybody everybody always refers to the Sasanian state as the the last Iranian empire before the the coming of Islam. So that whole phrase would have made a long title and the last empire of Iran sort of a more succinct way of alluding to that. Um but then there's also the the idea that the notion of uh, Iran, Iran uh, as a, as a political name is an important and a controversial one. Um, obviously, you know that name Iran seems to be unknown, uh, certainly to classical historians. What we call Iran is usually referred to as Persia. Or that name—that name comes from the the area that is now called Fars, that, that I mentioned before. In in the older Persian, it would have been pronounced Pars or Parsa. So the, the the word though comes from, or at least it's first attested, I believe, in in Zoroastrian scripture, in the putative writings of of the prophet Zoroaster. He refers to what what he calls the Arianem vaejo which could be translated as the the abode uh, of the Aryans the, that that word means Aryan referring to the you know the very ancient the very ancient Indo-European past and and people who spoke that language precisely where this place is is can I don't think it can ever really be determined it's if it corresponds to anywhere, it's probably somewhere you know uh, in northeastern Iran, or sort of shading into Central Asia somewhere like that. But uh, this area is uh, considered to be the religious heartland and the uh, or the, the, the origin of Iranian religion and political order in in Zoroastrian scripture. Um, we don't really know, th- there's an interesting article on this by a guy called Nyoli, uh, we don't really know what the Achaemenid state called itself, like you may have some insights into that, and we don't really know what the Parthian state called itself either. Uh, but the Sasanian state called itself iran Shah, which means literally the Empire of Iran. That is taken to be an, illu- an allusion in, in the Middle Persian language, an allusion to Zoroaster's abode of the Aryans, the uh, Aryanam Vaejo. And uh, Ardashir, the founder of the, of the Sasanian state, is, uh, I guess you could say, he's, he's, he's purporting to have reestablished established that, uh, that idea, or at least, uh, if not to have re-established it, to have created a state that is the political and spiritual successor to to that uh, Zoroastrian idea and, the, and that mythical homeland. So, as I say in the book, the jury is out on whether anyone ever tried to do that before, because we don't know enough about previous Iranian empires, but the Sasanian attempt to do that was most certainly the last. And, of course, with the coming of the Arab conquest, Iran begins a slow but steady uh conversion away from from zoroastrianism to uh islam and i don't get into this in the book but there uh, th- that 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 phrase iran shah is used much later on uh after the Sasanian state occasionally but always as an allusion to the power and prestige of the ancient pre-islamic uh monarchy so uh kind of a kind of a long winded explanation but uh that's basically the reason um i and i you know i didn't want to call- i didn't want to give it some kind of banal title like a history of you know a history of san Iran or just something straightforward you know so uh, i hope i hope buried within there is a, is a is a, is a cogent uh explanation
3: no, I think so, and actually it connects quite directly to the next question i think because the Sasanian relationship with their past is something you do go into quite a lot in the book. Yeah. Uh, And something I just found very striking and interesting, because they developed these complex genealogies for themselves, and they found their ancestry or invented maybe their ancestry in both Hellenistic and Iranian history up to that point. So, how exactly and why exactly did they create such complex family stories rather than just asserting their own dynasty?
4: Again, a fascinating question. So with with a maddeningly complex answer. Um, So the first thing I would say is that uh, I would draw attention to the fact that I'm fairly sure that the Seleucids did this sort of thing too, that you have this idea that... uh, you know, Alexander is the, or sorry, Alexander's successor, Ptolemy. He's he's both the heir to, to the Macedonian uh, monarchy and to the pharaohs, so that he has two bloodlines or something. I don't think that was actually literally true, but I but I, I believe that that was asserted as well. And you have um, similar examples of Hellenistic. Monarchs like Mithridates the Sixth of Pontus, who says that you know he's he's descended on one side from uh, Cyrus and and on the other side from from Alexander, which of course is probably not true I mean who knows but then you find that the 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 sasanians do exactly the same thing that they have to find some way of legitimizing, I think, find some way of legitimizing their rule over lands, which were most recently uh, ruled by the Parthian dynasty. So therefore there has to be some kind of connection with the, the Achaemenids. So you get this idea that there's some, some ancient long descent from uh probably from Darius III the the relics of Sassanian uh literature that that were recycled in in uh, Arabic chronicles they they talk about this figure called Dara uh which is most likely the name uh, corruption of the name Darius um and most probably Darius III but then you also have this idea that put into the mouth of uh Parthian king, I think, one of the Artabonds, i can't, can't remember exactly who it was, uh, by Tacitus. Tacitus says that this this king was so enraged at Rome he said he was going to reestablish the borders that were uh, held first by Cyrus and later by Alexander, which can only really make sense if you assume that the posterity viewed Alexander. As a legitimate continuator of the of the Achaemenid uh, monarchy, which is probably exactly how Alexander wanted himself to be thought of. I think you, you probably know much more about that than I do. Um, so by the time the Sasanians come along, you have this idea of a double double heritage, uh, being the successor to both the the, the indigenous and and, and legitimate uh, Iranian state. Uh, founded by Cyrus and the the one that came uh, immediately after that, but what the sasanians do is they basically cut out the Parthians altogether with the result that you have a completely inaccurate and and totally imaginary you know sort of very 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 short hiatus between the fall of the Achaemenid state and the appearance of, of Ardashir. This results in some sort of strange chronological impossibilities, such as the, uh, the appearance of Jesus, uh, sorry, the appearance of Jesus's uh, one of Jesus's uh, apostles at the, at the court of Ardashir, which of course, you know, we're, we're off by, you know, more than 200 years at at, at that point. Um, But the Sasanian opinion seems to have been, Something like the reign of the Parthians was completely illegitimate and needed to be blotted out, and that the uh, the appearance of the sasanian family was the restoration of the, of, of the first indigenous Iranian monarchy uh, under under Cyrus. The story that we have of the actual uh, genealogy of Ardashir is really bizarre, uh, I would say. It's first attested in the uh, historian Agathias, who is a a contemporary of the uh, Roman emperor Justinian. Uh, Agathias purports to describe the contents of Persian royal annals. And he says that that this mysterious figure, Sassan, was a, a, a cobbler, I, I believe, or he was like an itinerant, uh, an itinerant soldier, or who, who was descended from a cobbler, or or some, something like that. And that um, Ardashir himself had an illegitimate birth, became adopted by Sasan or something like that. This this is the first attested story, first attested version of the of the story, and it seems to be a kind of lampoon of it. Later on in, in the uh, Perso-Arabic tradition, sorry, before we get to the Perso-Arabic tradition, we also have a, uh, a Middle Persian text that was redacted probably at some point in the 8th or 9th century, which is called the the Book of the Deeds of uh, Ardashir or the Karnal magi Ardashir. And um, this seems to report the the real story, which is that, that Sasan was a shepherd much like the, this is kind of reman- getting close to the story of Cyrus. That Sasan was a shepherd who uh, was a sort of ancient progenitor of, sorry, not necessarily ancient, but he was the progenitor of, of Ardashir. And that uh, he had gone and fled to some sort of distant place and had come back uh, after the uh, fall of the Achaemenids and that it was this family that the, this, the the Sassanids were descended. Unfortunately, there is no corroboration for any of this in any of the inscriptions that the Sasanian uh, state uh, itself put up, or that the Sasanian kings themselves put up. Um, the inscriptions by Ardashir and his son Shapur make no reference to uh, any distant ancestor called Sasan. Um, so this is very mysterious we don't really know uh what to make of it but it seems as though the story w- was invented at some point within the reign of the Sasanians and not before and was embellished as it as it went along but the, the you know the, the the critical facts i think of the, the 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 story of the the shepherd and baby being raised and and having a glorious future predicted and so forth it's very much reminiscent i think of other ancient uh, near eastern stories of the appearance of heroes such as uh the birth of cyrus or moses and and that sort of thing um but there is no way to uh to verify any of it and it seems to have been
3: designed uh it seems to have been designed mainly for ideological reasons well I think this is a good time to talk about the question that you had suggested because we've already touched on uh, the variety of sources that we're working with with the Sasanians. You've mentioned Roman and Middle Persian and Arabic, uh, but also there are Armenian and Syriac and a wide range of other texts to deal with when approaching this topic.
4: So the fundamental problem with Sasanian history is that we we have very, very little that was actually produced by the Sasanians themselves apart from inscriptions and uh, monumental reliefs. Uh, and those are only really the, the inscriptions are only from the early from the early days of, of the dynasty. There are no texts comparable to Herodotus or uh, Procopius or or anything like that we have we have some pieces of the Zoro- Zoroastrian scripture and commentaries that were probably written or at some point redacted during the sasanian era but these don 't really tell us much about history we have roman we have contemporary Roman sources we have contemporary uh, Syria Syriac Sources produced most produced from within the Iranian world by churchmen, uh, and of course we have Armenian uh, writers, most of whom were also churchmen. Armenian historiography is in, in no way uh, inferior to to its uh, Mediterranean uh, models. Uh, there are f- some fine uh, are Armenian writers who take a great deal of interest in in Iranian affairs. Um, the difficulty with using all those sources though, is that they really only um, they only look at Iran when Iranian affairs impinge directly on uh, on their own affairs, so you know you have a writer like Amienus Marcellinus purporting to write uh, you know to continue the history of Tacitus down to his own day in the in the fourth century. Um, he has great information uh, remarkably detailed and 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 uh, accurate accounts of battles with uh, Iran battles with uh, Persia the expedition of Julian the the apostate to uh, the the Iranian capital at teasaphon that's you know top-notch but when he sets when, when he when he gets down to describing the uh, the makeup of the sasanian state and you know, what its people are like and, and, and trying to attempt a political description of, of, of Sassanian Iran, he just falls back on, on recycled Hellenistic stuff and, and sort of allusions to um, Herodotus and, and writers, uh, you know, much older uh, classical authors. Um, so that's, you know, as good as useless. Um what we, what we do have though, is we have uh, in in later universal histories composed under uh, Islam in Arabic and uh, Persian, we have authors who purport to recycle indigenous sasanian material, um, most famously, you have the the historian and jurist Tabari who writes a universal chronicle from the beginning of time. Uh, Uh, all the way up to basically his own day, um, which covers, you know, all of world history. And and he's got a long, long, long uh, part of his book dealing.
5: I routinely wish that I knew more languages. Even right in the middle of the U.S., I run into Spanish speakers all the time, and my social media always has a little Persian, Arabic, some Dutch and German. Rosetta Stone does help. It's the most trusted language learning program, after all. It's also conveniently available on desktop or on the go as an app, and has some really cool features that truly immerse you in the language you're learning. Just the first steps, like learning a new alphabet and some simple phrases, helped open new doors, and Rosetta Stone is a great choice as the trusted expert in this for 30 years, and millions of users with 25 languages available to learn. They focus on fast language acquisition without English translations to help you learn, speak, listen, and think in your new language while building long-term retention. Their true accent speech recognition also gives feedback on pronunciation, which can be really important for languages like Persian, where how you say something is very important. And on top of being available for desktop and mobile, you have the option to download lessons and take them offline. This is also all available at a steal. You can get lifetime membership all
3: 25 languages for 50% off. Don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. With uh,
4: Sasanian, Sasanian political history and the Arab conquest and, and so on and so forth. And there are there are others who came before him who did the same thing. And this sort of genre of literature culminates in the writing of the Iranian national epic, finally published in, in the year 1010 in Persian. And uh, a huge part of it deals with Sasanian Iran, as well as the sort of more mythical uh, Iranian past. Um, a lot of this stuff does almost certainly come from the Sasanian era itself. It's obviously been reworked a lot. A lot of the Zoroastrian content has been sort of cut out. It appears in Arabic and not in Middle Persian. So it's been translated. Um, Who knows how many times it's been worked over, but there are uh, things you can extract from it, Um, bearing in mind that that this tradition is very late and... um, written by people who were perhaps not totally sympathetic to the Sasanian state simply because it was, it was, you know, it was the Arabs, uh, certainly in the, in the account of Tabari, you know, it's the the sort of salvation history of the, of the world and the coming of Islam that brings down this sort of, you know, an an empire that was viewed as, as, as decadent and, and, and quote, unquote, pagan. Um, so, Putting all these sources together, I think that it is possible to get, you know, a fair narrative uh, of uh, of Sasanian history. And more recently, uh, there's been a lot of archeological work and, and work on uh, Sasanian aristocratic seals, for example, that, that yield a lot of information about things like the government administration or occasionally we find a seal of someone who is attested in in, in the Perso-Arabic tradition and we can confirm that he really existed, that kind of thing. Um, for my book though, uh, I take, I approach the later sources, the Perso-Arabic tradition, with a great deal of skepticism. Um, that doesn't mean that I avoid it. It's just that there's a lot of it that just simply cannot be, uh, cannot be verified. And unless there's a good, you know, unless there's a very good reason, I, I try to leave out the the more mythical sounding Arabian Nights style stuff that you find in in this like the the islamic historians are forever dwelling on the richness of the sassanian courts or these sort of legendary adventures and banquets and and hunts and things like that and unless it adds unless such details add something to history or to the narrative i try to leave that stuff out in general, though, it is possible to corroborate a lot of what is found both in the sort of late Roman, uh, late Roman and Armenian sources, and in the uh, the Perso-Arabic tradition. But when it comes to you know something like if you compare this to the history of something like late Republican Rome, where you you can account for all kinds of personages and and we have uh, letters between. People And we know, you know, almost day by day how history unfolded. Uh, Sasanian history is nothing like that. Very rarely do individual persons come into full focus or, you know, very rarely do you get anything like a clear exposition of what a battle was like. We're pretty much in the dark when it comes to like the Sasanian administration, what government was like, that kind of thing. So it's it's it, it is a bit of a it is a bit of a challenge and we don't get the kind of detail that we do in other in other periods, but that's part of the fun.
3: Yes, it always is. Certainly there are sections of Achaemenid history where I'm trying to pull fragments of TCS together to find something worth talking about. So having disparate sources, I think is maybe one consistent thing about ancient Iranian history.
4: Yes, absolutely. Well, the, I mean, this is a question in, in, in a previous book, I asked the question whether the Sasanian state actually... Ever recorded what we would call history? That's a controversial question. Like, did they have chronicles or actual historiographical works that were something other than the king did this, the king did that? You know, on such and such a date, you know, this battle was like. Was it anything more than that? Was what were there texts like uh, you know, like Herodotus, or were there texts that purported to? you know, that, that had like a kind of vision of history that were not, say, religious. I I don't know if... Well, actually, if I had to bet, I would say they probably didn't. This is one of the main challenges because then the alternative is, well, they did, and then we have to explain how, for some reason, absolutely none of them survived. I'm, I'm more inclined to say that they just didn't... That they did not write... They did not write history the way their neighbours
3: did. Very interesting, and somewhat unhelpful yes very very sad um i think shifting from the technicalities of historiography to uh the narrative political history of things the sassanids were famously rivals with the roman empire and the byzantine empire however people want to define that on their western border so could you maybe comment on that but more importantly I think people are probably less familiar with their conflicts in the East with people like the Kushans and the Hephthalites, possibly elaborate more on that in terms of their foreign endeavors.
4: So what I would say is that the, you know, people will probably hate me for this, but the conflicts with Rome are really a sideshow that the, you, you have the two, you have two equally matched, equally powerful, uh, equally militarily capable empires who are just sort of duking it out blow for blow along their border going down from the Caucasus in the north and down to Arabia in the south and they're jockeying for position nonstop and for most of the time neither one can really get the better of the other that and that's just you know business as usual in the in the Roman East and in the Iranian West in Central Asia though Iran comes face-to-face with a succession of nomadic powers, and nomads, for a variety of reasons, have always posed a threat to sedentary uh, empires ever since anyone can remember. Um, Even the Hebrew prophet Jeremiah refers to how dangerous the nomads are. Um, Herodotus mentions the Scythian uh, invasion in the the Neo-Assyrian period, so this is something that civilized, sedentary people have always uh, lived with. And uh, the fact is that Iran is very dangerously exposed to the steppe. There are very few natural defenses in, in eastern Iran. And the large sort of expanse of grassland, uh, what is now uh, sort of the the uh, eastern side of the Caspian Sea, that just sort of stretches immeasurably off you know, to the north and, and east and just sort of goes all the way until you get to Manchuria or something. So there is basically no defense, uh, no natural defense, no clear border in the Iranian east. Listeners may be more familiar with, say, the Roman conflict with the Huns or the uh, migration of the Germanic peoples. Those migrations had already uh, come a very, 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 very long way before they get into uh, what we call Europe, and the migration of the Huns, for example, had affected Iran long before the Romans heard about them. but going back even even earlier than that, you mentioned the kushans The, Ku, the, 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 the Kushans were a sedentary power who had uh, originally been nomadic, who had been dislodged from the borders of China. They were displaced and pushed uh, into what we now call Afghanistan and and that sort of region, by other nomadic powers. Most importantly were the Huns. Uh, This identification is still controversial amongst some people, but the Chinese sources refer to a group of people called the Xiongnu, who are, to my mind, almost certainly the Huns. The Xiongnu were on the borders of China for a very, very long time. Conflict conflict with China and neighboring powers eventually triggered a migration. And a group of people whom the Chinese sources call the Yuezhi move off out of the vicinity of China, chased by the Huns, Xiongnu, and they appear on Iran's eastern uh, flank. One of the constituent tribes of the Yuezhi are called the Kushans. They set up a state and we know almost nothing about them except to say that they had some beautiful coins and probably all sorts of kushan experts are going to tell me i'm you know horribly ignorant or way off something but they're very mysterious and you know practically the next thing we know about them they've been swallowed up by the sassanian expansion in in the third century but of course that was not the end of uh Central Asian uh, history in Sasanian affairs. In the reign of uh, Shapur II, you have the migration of the Huns themselves, who appear in the uh, middle of the 4th century, in the middle of a war with Rome. Shapur II has to break off his uh, conflict with Rome without a peace treaty and go off into the East to uh, deal with the Huns. After 10 years, presumably, of uh, fighting and diplomatic engagements, Persians returned to the Roman front with the Huns as an ally. Those Huns are most probably the ancestors, or at least the same kind of political grouping as the people uh, who eventually came to be called Kidarite and Hephthalite. Kittarite and Hephite are probably dynastic names or clan names, maybe family names, tribal names, something like that, from within a Hun confederacy. And from that moment on, it's virtually constant conflict with the uh, Huns uh, in the Iranian East. The Huns successfully reduce, uh, they conquer a lot of territory, and they successfully reduce um, the Sasanian state to paying tribute much the same way as Attila extracted tribute from Rome and the same way that the Xiongnu uh, themselves uh, extracted tribute from China. Under the threat of the Huns, and of course, eventually, as, as, as I said, eventually the Huns are, are threatening Rome uh, as well at exactly the same time. Um, what ends up happening is that un- under the, the weight of this external threat, both Rome and Persia are forced to cooperate for the first time in their history because they recognize that the world of the steppe and the world of the nomad is significantly more dangerous to to both than either is to the other. Um, You have evidence of this in church council records from within the Persian Empire. You have the Persian king declaring that uh, he's going to tolerate Christianity, the the religion of the Roman Empire, because basically... it's not worth it to fight rome when there is such a formidable external uh, enemy uh, to be faced for better or for worse that was not the way things stayed uh, the two powers did indeed return to to warfare but the power of nomadic forces became the decisive factor in every subsequent uh, contest between rome and and persia um most famously, I would say, in the last war between the two powers uh, right before the coming of Islam, the victory of the Emperor Heraclius against Persia would not have been possible without uh, an alliance with the Turks, who had replaced the hephthalites as the dominant power of Central Asia. And it was the Turks who smashed their way through Sasanian defenses, persuaded the nobles of Persia to overthrow their king and bring an end to the war. The only other thing I would add to this is that the defensive fortifications that Iran built in the Sasanian era to keep nomadic powers out are enormous. They are the most, uh, they're, they, they built the second biggest wall in Eurasia after the, the Great Wall, uh, Great Wall of China. This is now mostly a ruin, but it was a vast, enormous wall from the shore of the Caspian all the way into um, the, a mountain range uh, nearby. And uh, you have uh, impenetrable defences in in the Caucasus, uh, some of which still exist. And to think, you know, it, it, you're looking at the even the, the the relics or the ruins of these uh, uh, walls and fortresses and so forth. You can see the evidence of a very powerful central, c- you know, centralized state capable of of uh, pr- projecting uh, power beyond its borders, of fortifying. Uh, weak points, you know, putting into the field enormous numbers of of uh, men and, uh, and and cavalry, all because of the threat of uh, nomads of Central Asia.
3: Well, I think, especially since you mentioned the alliance with the Turks and the Romans, uh, that brings us to probably the the ultimate, in the sense of finality, uh, foreign enemy of the Sasanian Persians. Uh, with the Arab invasions of the 7th century. yeah, The big unanswerable question, I think, uh, that we can always try to answer, is why did they fall? We have, uh, on one hand, Rome, or Constantinople, which is severely weakened, but remains in a form. Yeah. But on the other side, the Persian Empire is wiped off the map and yep. replaced by the caliphate.
4: hmm So... I'll give, you, I'll give you two ways of answering this question. One is the, is the simple way, and the other is the complex and convoluted way. The simplest answer is this, that Iran fought Rome uh, most recently from the beginning of the 7th century to about the year 628. Uh, so they had fought basically for an entire generation. And Iran had consistently beaten Rome, had consistently taken and held territory. They had a formidable military uh, apparatus, very uh, potent generals they obviously had uh, the wherewithal the the money uh, the manpower and everything to to conquer most of the settled uh, world and to hold it and and rule it when when Rome fought back and eventually won, it was not because of any particularly Bad defeat or any kind of, you know, major setback that Iran uh, had to stop. And, and of course, you know, fairly good relations were, were restored after that. It was, I would say, fatigue at the rule of uh, Khosrow II and fatigue at a war that had simply gone on longer <laughs> than, you know, a lot of people could even remember. So there was no sudden humiliation or you know uh, massive defeat or anything like that, even, even with the participation of the Turks. Similarly, when the Arabs uh, began raiding the uh, uh, border to the north of Arabia that was uh, in a weakened condition after the uh, retreat of uh, Iranian troops from Roman territory, the Persians put up a very aggressive resistance, far more aggressive than, than Rome did you have several large armies being put into the field one after another to, to beat back the Arab, uh, onslaught. And in some, uh, notable cases, Iran was, uh, successful, but in the end, and this is the simple, almost trivial explanation. In the end, the Arabs simply beat them. There was uh, no, no further resistance was possible. Um, the Persian government had just sort of lost the the will to continue, and the king himself had to flee into uh, Central Asia uh, and escape, and the Arabs took control of the Persian capital, and that was basically it. So, again, the simple answer is they put up a great fight, but they lost. A more complex answer goes like this. At the the time of the fall of Khosrow II, his successors were in such a state of disorder because there were sort of multiple contests for the throne. His immediate successor, his son uh, is reported to have killed off all of his male relatives, his brothers, all of his brothers. And this created a kind of crisis of legitimacy because he then, his name was Shiruya or Shiroi. He then, uh, uh, there was then an outbreak of the plague, the, the same disease as the Justinianic plague. And he died after a reign of only about a year or, so there was no uh, male uh, successor to be found. There were a couple of Queens, you know, who were, who were not considered legitimate for very long. And then suddenly you have a succession of claimants to the throne and each one is getting killed after the other. We even have uh someone who is not of the royal house, a former general uh, who is known by his title Shah Baraz, who tries to make himself king. He doesn't last very long. And, you know, by the end of it, the, the prestige of the ruling house has been so badly shaken, uh, it doesn't really recover. Even the last king, the III, uh, who was a direct descendant of Khosrow second. Somehow, collaterally, his power was never fully secure. And once the Arabs uh, came in, uh, it was impossible to make. It was impossible to maintain the resistance for for very long. At the same time as all this is happening, there are reports within the uh, Arab chroni- chronicles of a severe flood, uh, the plague. As I said, you have the fact that uh, the empire has simply gone on you know it's already lasted for more than a little over 400 years you know it's it's already old how much more energy is left so on and so forth but what ends up happening which i think is noteworthy at the time of the conquest is that regional authority sort of takes over that the 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 evidence that we have suggests that a series of regional uh treaties were signed with the arab conquerors that individual cities capitulated one by one under different terms to me this bespeaks the absence of any kind of uh, central authority even when the king was still on the throne Um, the weakness of of a centralized power to to organize uh, both resistance and to you know, sign treaties and so on and so forth. So you, you clearly have a breakdown of power and prestige at the center, which is complete and irreversible by the time the Arabs uh, take the Persian capital. So I don't think, I think part of your question was about what did the Arabs have that the Sassanians didn't. Uh, I don't think that the Arabs won because of any particular kind of technology or, uh, you know, military tactic or, or anything like that, I th- they, they certainly had the advantage of high morale and confidence, confidence in a new religion, confidence in in the victories that they had already won. They were able to take advantage of of a bad
3: situation in Persia. All right. Well, I think I have one more question to give some kind of conclusion to our discussion of the Sasanids with uh, the conclusion of, their royal bloodline of so, in some ways that I feel doesn't get the attention it deserves um at the end of your book you talk about how the uh, sons of Yazdegerd III found their homes in exile in China and became sort of part of the Chinese nobility in western China yeah uh, could you uh, give some final comments on Persian aristocrats in exile in the east so i
4: should i should start with the uh the warning with the the caveat that i don't i don't know any uh i don't know any chinese at all um and finding relevant sources uh in translation dealing with this topic is really really hard but i found some and um the and 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 there's probably more that i that i don't know about chinese dynastic annals from various periods attest things, uh, well, they attest, if not a strong relationship between Iran and China, certainly one that was, I don't know what you would call it now, it was like a bilateral relationship of, of, you know, some significant importance. Embassies, you have records of embassies being received and sent. Unfortunately, we don't really know what was discussed in any of these embassies because they don't really say, they mention things like bringing tribute and, and greetings and so forth. And one of them tantalizingly references a letter, the Persian King Kavad sent to um, the Chinese emperor and it quotes the, the annals in question, quote, the beginning of this letter. It's just a, it's just like a formulary, uh, you know, salutation at the beginning of the letter, and then we don't have the rest of it. So it's tantalizing as to what, you know, you can imagine what, you know, the letter might have actually contained and it'd be great if we had it, but we don't. So there was a relationship of some kind, probably a lot to do with trade since, you know, goods would have passed out of out of China, overland into Iran for for sale, um, you know, onto the Roman empire and, and, and beyond. This is commonly referred to as the Silk Silk Route. At the end of the, or toward the end of the Sasanian era, you have um, the king attempting to flee into the steppe. According to Tabari, Yazgar III sen- sends a letter to the Tang emperor, Tai uh, taizong asking for help, and it's refused. We don't know whether this is genuine, but, you know, it fits, the, it, it fits with the previous pattern. At the very end of this contest with the Arabs, the sons of Yazgard and a handful of aristocrats, probably all those who had not perished already in battle, uh, appear uh, at the Chinese capital. The emperor then grants uh, the son of Peroz, sorry, the son of Yazgard, his name is Peros, Peros. Uh, the, the third, he grants him, you know, a special uh, title within the the Chinese court and the Sasanians basically set up a court in exile, which then carries on for uh, a few hundred years. I can't remember exactly how long, but um, there are statues in, in the uh, I, I'm not going to pronounce the name properly. something like Chen or something, uh mausoleum, uh, statues of the of the uh sasanian pretender and uh, his his followers and uh there is a tombstone uh, or a gravestone of a uh, Persian aristocrat of the Surain family and this this is i think i think this appears in the ninth century I, I have to double check in my book but anyway uh this is the last monument of the sasanian uh, or uh, Iranian uh, and Sasanian nobility in in China, and then they are slow. They they, they are not heard from again, and uh, presumably were absorbed into the Tang uh, aristocracy. Uh, and of course the Tang were famous for their uh, openness to the rest of the world, their cosmopolitanism. And it makes it makes perfect sense in a way that uh, the, the Tang court would have been a refuge to Iranians uh, fleeing the Arab conquest. But I will say it was not the only such refuge. Eastern Iran uh, in the early days um, of the Arab conquest actually well into the Arab conquest, Eastern Iran was not fully subdued. And there were parts of it that were never really incorporated into the caliphate. The Tang emperor gave the III command, or, or he recognized his his command over a portion of of Eastern Iran centered on the, the city called Zadang in uh, Sistan. You know, this was a kind of honorary title, but in theory, Uh, the Sasanian uh, pretender uh, exercised some kind of, uh, you know, nominal rule over that area, because it was not uh, fully incorporated within the caliphate. Um, And all sorts of legends cropped up about the Sasanian kings in exile in the East, who would, uh, you know, one day come to deliver the uh, to deliver iran from from arab rule and there are there are sort of relics of this in in Zoroastrian, uh scripture, which of course assumes that a lot of Zoroastrian scripture was was written down you know after the after the fall of after the fall of the sasanian family but as you alluded before like there there was no Iranian equivalent of Byzantium there was no sort of like lingering presence of of the Sasanian of the Sasanian world after the arab conquest and i say you know in 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 my book there's sort of a bit of a purple passage where uh, you know i say that there would never be an iranian charlemagne or no iranian justinian to to reconquer the empire and um that's that's the truth the the arab conquest was uh final but there's a real sense in which the Abbasid Caliphate is, is basically a, re, a reanimation of the Sasanian world. That the, the capital is transferred from Damascus to very, very nearby where Tizephan was. Um, and, you know, the city that grew up there is, uh, was famous throughout the medieval world. That's Baghdad. And it, Baghdad, for uh, the descriptions that we have of it, it looked like a Sasanian city. Um, it was in the heartland of the old uh, Persian Empire. The, the Abbasid caliphs were, as a rule, you know, part Persian. Uh, Persian literature uh, was uh, all the rage. Uh, the, uh, the old Sasanian bureaucracy was revived sort of about the, the so-called Abbasid translation movement uh, brought all sorts of middle Persian texts into Arabic. And there's a real, and, and of course the, 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 the sort of quintessentially, uh, you know, Abbasid office of the vizier is, is basically a kind of revival of, of, a, of a Sasanian institution. So there's a sense in which the empire did live on, but it was, as I say in the book, it was no longer a putative reconstruction of a Zoroastrian myth. It was the,
3: it was the empire of uh, Islam. Very good. And just like the book, I think that's an excellent place to end the discussion. Uh, Is there anything else you'd like to say in uh, reference to the Sasanians or your book about them?
4: Well, I would, I would urge everyone to buy it immediately, of course, but uh, I, think, I think I've pontificated about Sassania Persia enough for, uh, <laughs> for one afternoon.
3: All right. Well, excellent. And uh, thank you so much for asking to do this and reaching out. Uh, I think this will be very interesting for people to hear as an interesting fast forward into the future of the podcast.
4: Yeah, well, thank you very much for having me. It was a, it was a pleasure.
3: Well, everyone, I hope you all enjoyed that. I certainly enjoyed reading the book and recording this interview. I look forward to exploring the Sassanids and their predecessors more in the coming months and years. It will be quite a long time before the podcast reaches them, but hopefully this gives you a taste of what's yet to come. I will place links to Dr. Bonner's book both on Amazon and on the publisher's website in the description of this episode. And I will see you all next time. Until then, if you want more information about this podcast and other books I recommend, you can check out the website, historyofpersiapodcast.com, or you can support me on the Patreon page, patreon.com historyofpersia. All support is always appreciated. You can also support the show through various other means, like exploring the support page on the website Or, just telling your friends, having the show grow is the most exciting thing for me. Share it on social media, at History of Persia on Twitter, and History of Persia Podcast on both Facebook and Instagram. The other thing I would really appreciate for everyone to do is leave a review on your service of choice. Podcast Addict, Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, Stitcher, they all have excellent review platforms these days, and I always appreciate your feedback. You can also send feedback and get in touch with me at historyofpersiapodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, everyone, thank you for listening to Dr. Michael Bonner and the History of Persia.